EU Confidential gets started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Aldapati. With Europe facing the challenges of a generation, Aldapati is committed to fostering an honest debate about the continent's future by genuinely involving citizens in discussions. I think it's very important just to kind of get out of the theoretical realm, the, the think tank realm of strategic autonomy, and, all, and to talk about pragmatic, practical solutions. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Sarah Wheaton, Politico's chief policy correspondent, filling in for Andrew Gray, who's back next week. But this week, we have a great episode in store, including a conversation with the voice you just heard at the top of the podcast, Derek Cholet, the top advisor to U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. He's been in Europe to discuss some of the big geopolitical issues. One of the things we've talked about here in Brussels today is now that the Bulgarians have had an election and we'll have a new government, that let's hope to make some progress on Albania and North Macedonia in terms of their own efforts to enter the EU. And that's something, it's not for the U.S. to decide whether that happens, but we're certainly going to lend our efforts into trying to do what we can to help make it up. That's coming up later in the podcast. But first, we're going to check in with Carl Matheson, our senior climate correspondent, to fill us in on the outcome of the COP26 climate talks and what it means for Europe. And now I'm sitting here, maybe for the last time in a while, in person with my colleague, Carl Matheson. Hey, Sarah. And... Carl, I'm actually surprised that you're awake after your marathon two weeks of summiting. Yeah, it's been pretty full on. We had the G20 as well. So we went Rome, Glasgow. It's It's been nuts. Well, thanks for rallying one last time here for us. No worries. So I'm eager for you to help us understand what it was like to be there on that final dramatic day in Glasgow. And you've collected some on-the-scene reactions to share with us. But first, could you explain what the actual outcome was of the conference? Yeah, so in typical UN climate process style, it was one of these things that was neither completely disastrous nor preventing disaster. It was, I guess, a step forward is the way that a lot of people have been describing it. Essentially, what they got was a big jump forward on rules for the Paris Agreement. And then what they also did, and this was a UK government initiative, was they created what's called a cover decision. And that was where all the drama was because it's much more of a political decision. It's kind of the signal to the rest of the world about what are the 197 parties agree that they're going to do in the years to come in order to basically close the gap. Because coming into this meeting, the UN was saying that the world was on track for 2.7 degrees warming, which is a catastrophe. They got that gap down, they think, to 2.4. And the IPCC, the leading science body, says that we need to be at 1.5, really, if we're going to be anywhere near safety. So that's the that's the gap that they're trying to close. And the way that they signaled what they were going to do, the main thing was that they said, we're going to come back next year and do it all again. Well, so let's look at that process of getting to that point of saying we're going to come back next year. Can you walk us through it a bit? Yeah. So to get there, you need all of the countries to strike a consensus on the deal. So coming into the last day, there was a kind of heart in mouth moment for the UK COP presidency where they essentially presented the final text. And this is Friday. Dear delegates, dear friends, and let me start by expressing... Then what happened was they quite clearly didn't have a consensus. So 
there was lots of people rebooking flights and things like that because they were expecting to go home Saturday. So on Saturday, there was another moment where the UK presidency said, no, now we've got a draft deal that we want to present to you and this is the final, final deal. We're not doing another one kind of thing. So that was where we were and the COP president, Alok Sharma, opened the meeting with a plea essentially to nail it down. We've had two incredibly intense weeks of negotiations in Glasgow and we arrive at what I believe is the moment of truth. And this is the moment of truth for our planet. And it's a moment of truth for our children and our grandchildren. Alok Sharma, that name's super familiar. We heard it a lot. Who is he exactly? So he's this uh, UK cabinet minister who was given the job of being the COP president. So what that essentially means is he's meant to be the kind of honest broker. He's meant to listen to all of the countries and make them feel heard, but ultimately disappoint all of them by presenting a text that is a compromise. So, friends, we have reached a critical juncture where we must come together and bring our hard work to a successful conclusion. You're all skilled negotiators. and you're Okay, well, so, so far, so good. It sounds like it to me. When did you get the sense that things were going to get more complicated? So what happens in a UN plenary is that you have there's this huge hall it looks like an aircraft hangar where all of the countries sit behind their name tags and what happens when something starts going wrong in these climate talks is you start getting huddles well maybe better for this could be good and what we saw on saturday morning sort of mid to lunchtime was huddles started appearing on the floor and at first it was Countries raising very arcane but important issues for themselves. So like Papua New Guinea was saying that they wanted to use a bunch of credits that they'd had got from their forests to go into new carbon markets. So that kind of thing was bubbling up and it was delaying the deal, but usually those things get hammered out. This went on for hours and there was a sense that everybody had just about come to terms with their issues and everyone had indicated that they were happy with what's in the deal and then suddenly one of the Chinese delegates approached the podium and asked for demanded for a word to be changed in the text I see China is seeking an intervention I invite China to take the floor There was a line in the text that said the countries would agree to phase out coal power or unabated coal power. And that language the Chinese wanted changed to phase down. So obviously there's a world of difference between those two things. And it instigated this enormous fight on the floor. Suddenly you had the Brits completely blindsided saying, why haven't you raised this before? We're literally gaveling through this deal. We want to go home. Everyone's finished here. And the Americans approached them so that you had basically the four big beasts of the climate world coalesced on the floor of the UN plenary. You had the EU's climate chief, Franz Timmermans. You had the US climate envoy, John Kerry, the Indian environment minister, Bupinda Yadev, and China's climate envoy, Xi Shenhua. And they decided to leave the room. And that was a really dramatic moment. And I remember it was particularly dramatic because 
At the same time as they were leaving the room, you had on stage all of these negotiators who were like taking selfies because they had the sense that they were about to finish this off. And one person said to me that well, it was the optimism and the pessimism of the moment because they marched out of the room and went into a, a back room and sat down. And so the four largest emitters of carbon on Earth sat down in a circle. Alok Sharma from the UK was out there too. The Chinese said behind closed doors that they would bring the entire deal down unless they changed that one word from phase out to phase down. So that was the most dramatic moment of the COP. And it was extraordinary to me because it was this raw display of power. The four biggest emitters suddenly turned a multilateral process into a process that was worked out behind closed doors. There was an interesting other thing for our EU listeners too because Timmermans, of course, as a commissioner, takes his mandate from the European Council and you had the European Council in the room. So while all this was going on and while they were discussing in the back room, the ministers from the EU were all standing in a huddle on the floor and Timmermans was kind of jogging back and forth in between and it was essentially an informal European Council. And I spoke to Nick Maybe, who's the head of the E3G think tank and, and advisor to the UK presidency, about what we were seeing. Well, what you saw was the uh, lesser spotted feral European Council meeting in the wild outside the protected areas of, uh, of Brussels. Um, they needed to change the instructions of their lead negotiator, so they huddled in a group and um, with the EU Council and made the decision. That's not something you often see. And there, but there's nothing uh, kind of from these concessions that would like wildly go outside the European Council's normal positions? I don't think so. It's more, you know, slightly a formality. They obviously gave their tournaments uh, his mandate this morning at Council and Finto a different mandate. He needs to get the OK um, from everybody. Uh, it's rather wonderful to see the EU acting in such a flexible and responsive manner and perhaps we should uh, institute flash mob councils across Brussels in the future to accelerate progress. So they came back into the room and there was an opportunity for other countries to object but because the US and EU had clearly assented to the change and Franz Timmermans made that clear. Having now expressed my disappointment... I want to reiterate what I said in my earlier intervention. This should not stop us from deciding today. Or what, even before you've read everything, I have to say is a historic, historic decision under your leadership, uh, and you can be very proud of that, Mr President. Then there wasn't a sense that anybody else could stand up. This is, and this is the kind of the interesting power play that you saw. It's... It's supposed to be a process where anyone can object and any country can stop consensus. But in the real world, if you get the four biggest emitters saying something, no one else moved. Man, so if I was one of these small little countries that's going to just get submerged by rising sea levels, I would be furious. Yeah, it was extraordinary. The, the mood in the room went from kind of celebratory to devastated. And a lot of the countries really strongly objected 
to the process, but none of them said that they would bring down the deal. I will now take an intervention from Fiji. Fiji, you have the floor. This was Fiji's Attorney General, um, Ayers Sayed um, Kayum. President, um, a few days ago, in fact about four days ago, when we talked about some language on loss and damage, we were told that we were introducing something at the last minute. It's rather ironic that just about two hours ago we discussed the text and now there's an amendment being made to that. And that I would call last minute, without any due process, going, due process being followed. Um, I think so yeah, after all this big buildup and then this last minute change, how did Sharma of the UK presidency kind of wrap everything up? Well, he listened to all of these objections and he's got a personal stake in this too because he set one of his kind of personal goals for the COP was to consign coal to history. And I think he felt devastated by the way it played out. So as he reflected on what had happened, he apologised to the room and then it was quite clear that he was fighting back tears. May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologise for the way this process has unfolded um, and uh, I am deeply sorry. I also understand the the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. Given this big defeat at the very end that you just described, how can we say there was any success at all in this COP? I think the coal language needs to be put in context. The UK didn't expect the language to survive. Coal has never been mentioned in a UN climate decision ever. So this was kind of historic just to get phased down coal in there. But really, it's not a particularly meaningful statement. It doesn't set any time limits on getting rid of coal or doing anything. It doesn't compel action. The UK was much more interested in getting everyone back to the table next year. Aside from the coal drama there was also this sense of victory uh, for a lot of the negotiators in the room because they'd finally closed out this deal that's been eluding them on the rule book of the Paris Agreement. And a lot of these negotiators kind of never expected to be here in 2021. They were seconded from some other part of their government to like negotiate a few rules on carbon markets in 2016 And I caught up with a few of them on the plenary floor just to see how they were feeling about it. Um, One of them's Costa Rica's negotiator on the carbon markets. His name's Felipe de Leon de Negri. And he talked me through what he'd been through the last six years. It's a grind. It's it's a horrible grind. Um, I mean, you'll be here for 20 hours a day for probably two weeks running with terrible food in most cases. Um, A lot of times horrible weather um, and bad installations right we're a small delegation from a small country the vast majority of my team is volunteers i'm a volunteer none of us are i mean most of us have to take time off for work to actually be here and so it's not like we're very well funded and we're far away another of the negotiators was uh ruina hayes she's a negotiator for trinidad and tobago and she just said it had been absolutely grueling (laughs) getting here wasn't easy actually left home in September for climate week and haven't been back since. My grandmother died in between and um, I haven't dealt with it and I haven't been able to to really mourn. 
but you know you have to just hope that what we do here kind of makes those sacrifices with it so were all those sacrifices worth it you know is your sense from the reporting that there was a feeling that there was some actual progress i think anyone looking to the un climate process to save the world at one cop will always be disappointed this is a very much an iterative process of nudging the world towards a less dangerous future and certainly it did that but a lot more is going to be needed in the next year or two really if they're going to do what they said they wanted to do which is bring warming down to 1.5 degrees Sharma called it a fragile win this is a fragile win and we have kept 1.5 alive that was our overarching objective when we set off on this journey two years ago taking on the role of the COP presidency designate but I would still say that um, the pulse of 1.5 is weak Uh, and that's why Carl Matheson thank you so much get some rest thanks Sarah Coming up right after this short message, we have this week's feature interview with Derek Cholet, the top advisor to U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken. Stay with us. A message from Altapati. Altapati plays an active role in ensuring that the Conference on the Future of Europe is a genuinely democratic process. Through a dedicated digital platform, they offer citizens the chance to make their voices heard. Six high-level priorities form the core of the Liberal Action Plan that provides concrete solutions to some of the biggest challenges Europe and the global community are facing, from climate change to economic recovery and innovation. Moreover, Alta Party organizes a series of town hall meetings across Europe together with member parties and partners to foster debate between citizens and liberal politicians on the issues that matter most. The future of Europe is here, and now is the time to act. And now, Politico's own David Herzenhorn caught up with top U.S. official Derek Chalet during his trip to Europe this week. They start with a discussion on the main focus of his trip, the flare-up of tensions in Bosnia. And then they move on to other issues, like the crisis at the border of Belarus and Poland, the U.S. view on EU enlargement, and, of course, America's current thinking on Emmanuel Macron's favorite topic, European strategic autonomy. So we wanted to catch up with Derek Chalet. He is counselor in the United States Department of State, but that title might not do justice to his long role in U.S. diplomacy and the extent to which he has the ear of his boss, uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken. Uh, Derek Chalet has been Assistant Secretary for International Affairs at the Pentagon. He's worked at the White House as Senior Director for Strategic Planning at the National Security Council and at the State Department in various roles, including as a sort of unofficial scribe in-house to many of the towering figures in U.S. diplomacy of the last decades, including James Baker III, Warren Christopher, Richard Holbrook, Strobe Talbot, and he's also worked at think tanks. Uh, he stopped back in Brussels on his way from Sarajevo, where he was talking to senior Bosnian officials about recent uh, crisis in the country, political disagreements that have threatened the now 26-year-old uh, Dayton Peace Accords. And one of the messages that we're sending is leaders 
rhetoric and, and how they're framing these issues and the talk of secession and the talk of sort of longstanding grievances could have consequences and it could stir things up in a very brittle, combustible environment. And then we broaden the conversation to talk to him about Europe and the rest of the world, Russia, China, and beyond. I think there have been joint statements by the EU and the US, I think by your boss, Tony Blinken and mm-hmm. Joseph yep, Burrell, that's right. yep. the high rep for foreign affairs, talking about Bosnia's European yes. future, its yep. trajectory toward EU membership. Is Brussels falling short there? Are they not doing enough to move this quickly? And this is a question, I guess we can broaden it to the wider Balkans, where we've seen tensions between Kosovo and Serbia. Yes. Serbia already a, a candidate country, of course, but North Macedonia, Albania, a lot yeah. of impatience building in that region. Is. Uh, is that impatience shared in it, Washington? Have we you talked about that with colleagues? We, we, well, we have talked about it. The impatience is palpable in the region. We believe that Bosnia's positive future rests in a Euro-Atlantic community. And we want it to stay headed in that direction. And the key for it to be part of the Euro-Atlantic community is to be headed towards the EU. Now, it's a ways from that. But it's very critical that that door remain open and that that process be available to them when the time is right. Uh, it's also important for other countries in the region to see that happen. And one of the things we've talked about here in Brussels today is now that the Bulgarians have had an election and we'll have a new government that let's hope to make some progress on Albania and North Macedonia in terms of their own efforts to enter the EU. And that's something, it's not for the US to decide whether that happens, but we're certainly going to lend our efforts into trying to do what we can to help make it happen. So which do you think happens for North Macedonia and Albania join the EU or Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C.? <laughs> oh, I, I, well, look, I think uh, I'll take Washington uh, has its own session. Yeah, issues. exactly. <laughs> I'll, I'll, look, I'll take the former. I, th- I think we've uh, we have a moment now where the United States is going to do its part, working with our European partners to try to get this North Macedonia, Albania process back on track. Which would then give Bosnia. Give it a reason, reason to, a hope and a sense that, that if they have do the right things, it's for their them as well. We're talking about the Polish-Belarusian yeah. border. Is there a role for NATO there uh, in the U.S. view? Article 4, Article sure. 5? Well, uh, I mean, look, Poland is quite concerned, with <laughs> justifiably concerned about the situation. What's happening on the border is completely unacceptable. I mean, the, the weaponization of, of innocent people this is the height of cynicism, what Lukashenko is doing. I think there should be no question or any guessing of what's happening here. Also, no question Moscow could exert some influence. No? And absolutely. And that's Chancellor some, Merkel called. And absolutely. Sort of, and that's something that, I mean, the chancellor talked to President Putin about it. You know, my colleagues, we've talked to our Russian counterparts about this as well. Unclear how satisfied they are with the situation. Uh, you know, Lukashenko and Putin have a complicated relationship themselves. Look, I think we see this in part, this whole tragedy as an effort to deflect perhaps other things that that Russia might be doing elsewhere, that is doing elsewhere in the world, but what they might be up to. But this has got to stop. Let me tap your expertise in the defense security realm. Uh, We know after some misunderstanding, if you want to call it that, between the U.S. and France Mm -hmm. over submarines and Indochina, Indo-Pacific security arrangement that uh, there's more talk of strategic autonomy, what's yeah. known as strategic autonomy in, in Europe. Yep. The idea that, that Europe should be, and EU allies within NATO should be more responsible for their own defense. Do you see Washington being able to get behind this or even suggest the kinds of capabilities 
that might be complementary because that's always an issue. Yeah. That, as opposed to just leaving it up to, to Europe, which seems to want some guidance. Oh, I, and I, we're willing, we, the United States, are willing to provide it. I have always believed, going back to my time at the Pentagon, going back to my time in the Bill Clinton administration 20 years ago when there was talk of building up greater European defense uh, after, in the wake of the Kosovo War and, it, and the concerns about the asymmetries between U.S. and European military capabilities that arose then – that we want a stronger Europe. It's in America's interest for Europe to be more capable militarily. That's why U.S. administrations, presidents from both parties, you know, secretaries of defense going back the last six or seven have all talked about the 2% GDP as a sort of basic good housekeeping standard for military spending as a percentage of GDP. And I think it's very important just to kind of get out of the theoretical realm, the, the think tank realm of strategic autonomy and all, and to talk about pragmatic, practical solutions. And what are we actually talking about when we're talking about some of these capabilities? I mean, the U.S. is more than willing to work with our European partners on that. We want Europe to be able to obviously carry its weight within NATO, but then also be able to work uh, with us or on its own to deal with threats from the Sahel here in Europe, elsewhere. And so I, you know, I think it's something we fully support and, and want to move past the theorizing about this and get down to pragmatic so think that's, solutions. That's a, that's a genuine willingness to yeah. get behind this. A absolutely. President Biden's absolutely. I guess one, one question, we, we'd stop back at strategic autonomy, is whether there's a risk that this exposes Europe's divisions, that the East doesn't Well, that's something, again, we've been very careful or we've been telling our European partners that we need to be very mindful of that. I mean, NATO for us remains at the core. And we don't want any of the any of this discussion of building up European defense capabilities to in any way undermine NATO. And the three Ds that were articulated when this debate was erupting 20 years ago that Secretary of State Madeleine Albright first articulated. We want no duplication. We want no discrimination. And we want no decoupling, meaning we don't want anything happening in Europe means the transatlantic alliance starts to fray. So we need to be mindful of this because, of course, as you pointed out, some of our friends in the East, for good reason, hear strategic autonomy and think, well, that means less NATO and that means less United States and that's worse. That's bad for us. What I've heard the conversation, the way the conversation shifted, it used to be about the Libya air campaign. Mm -hmm. The European Alliance, oh, we could never have continued with Libya if not for- it's, Which was for, true. For they, they, ran out of, they, they ran out of- They couldn't refuel. They ran out of bombs. Right. And now the conversation become how could- European allies alone, without the U.S.'s help, have held the Kabul airport, say, for three more days. That that, and so it, in that sense, though, having that capability might be somewhat it could redundant. But, but having a backup, I and mean, we live in an age when you know, yeah, but airlift computers I mean, need backups, right? I, I, I mean, yeah, then, Europe, Europe does. I, they don't still have enough airlift. So now I don't know. The basing is another thing that we need. We had in Kabul that I don't. I don't know that Europe will be able to have. And I don't think anyone in Europe is actually saying they want to replicate the U.S. military. Right. And to give your credit, they don't they, want to pay for it. That's true. Well, they don't want to pay, that's true. They don't pay for it. But also to give your credit, I mean, Europe's military activities in the Sahel. Now, they're enabled by American military assistance and, and our capability as well. But even in, within the foreign policy community, there's a lot of folks who don't think of all the, I don't know, how, over a thousand some EU troops, European troops based in Mali, for example. Led by France. But, Led, that, but that raises an interesting question because as there's been all this uh, talk after the, the AUKUS yeah. affair, as we would call it, a question of whether does France also need to step up as the last remaining 
nuclear power in the European Union as a permanent member of the Security Council without the UK say, look, this nuclear umbrella extends. They're not in the nuclear plan, for example, at at NATO. And, uh, you know, what I've printed out here is the joint statement between Presidents Macron and President Biden, Uh this laundry list of things that President Macron would like to see done together. I mean, is there an element here where you say, well, come on, guy, you got to got to do your part. Look, it, it, this isn't just words, right? It's going to, and this is, this is the challenge, of course, is that we've, we've, for a long time, American and European defense policymakers have come together to talk about the need for greater capability. We would, I sat through many, many defense ministerials when I was working at the, at the Pentagon and was here in Brussels at NATO defense ministerials where every defense minister around the table would all, be in violent agreement about the need to spend more on defense and have a more modern, capable military. But then all those defense ministers would have to go back to their parliaments, to their governments, and have to defend those budgets or advocate for those budgets, and they were not successful. And that's a dynamic that still exists here. So that's why I'm frankly less worried about European militaries overtaking the United States, right? I'm still more concerned about the increasing divide in capabilities, particularly as we in the United States are investing more and more in the modernization of our military to keep up with with the pacing challenge that is China. And we're going to have a European debate that's going to continue to debate, but not going to spend the money and procure the necessary equipment to be a modern, capable military in the 21st century. Do you sense as you travel a, we know that a lot of the world still looks to Washington for leadership, but do you notice a difference after the Trump administration, a shift in um, trust? I mean, there's a lot of concern around this town, for example, that, you know, there may be a second Trump term, it just might not have been sequential. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say I have been pleasantly surprised, again, having been out of government for four, five years, um, coming back in, that there's still a very strong demand signal for American leadership. And, you know, whether it's in Bosnia, uh, where I just was, whether it was in Southeast Asia, where I was three weeks ago, whereas it was in Libya and Tunisia, where I was six weeks ago, people want more of the United States. They want our presence. They want our leadership. They want our military might. Uh, they want our economic investment. And I remind my, my friends at home that the fact that the U.S. is in that position is unique. There are not many countries that you can say that about, if any, actually, around the world. There's not a lot of people wanting more of China. Uh, so now they, they'll deal with China. China's powerful. China's got, got you know big economy, a lot of money to throw around. But it comes with a price. So, uh, or at least an interest rate. Yeah, exactly. But so that's that's something we as we as Americans need to keep in mind. Now, people read the newspaper; they know the U.S. has got a lot of challenges at home. But the best we can do is deliver for the American people and to try to solve the problems before us. And I think my view is, if we do that, if President Biden does that, we'll be successful. It's as simple as that. Well, Dark Shelley, thank you so much for taking the time. Hope we get to enjoy some Belgian. Frites or waffles. It's on my list. While you're here. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow EU Confidential wherever you're listening to this podcast. And you can always send us feedback or ideas for the show. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Sarah Wheaton in Brussels. Thanks this week to Zia Weiss, Stefan Ferris, Lucas Kotkamp, and our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. 